Hello and welcome to my show, Shuvra Deb with you, with me, your host, Shuvra Deb. In this show, I will be discussing mental health with the aim of raising mental health awareness in our community and in society as a whole. The genesis of the show is my own pivotal life-changing experience of being in a Category 5 hurricane back in 2017. That experience led me to suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. I am hosting this show in order to let you know that you are not alone if something life-changing has happened to you from which you are struggling to heal. Shuvra Deb With You focuses on a range of topics relevant to mental health and to raising awareness of issues surrounding mental health. Hello everyone and welcome back to Shuvra Deb With You, where I help you to prioritize and look after your own mental health and that of those you love and care about. As you will know, and for those of you tuning in for the first time, my show is about raising awareness around the topic of mental health. I want us all to be living in a society where looking after our own mental health and the mental health of those we love and care about is no longer stigmatized, as is currently the case in society. I want us all to live in a world where we no longer make the distinction between mental and physical health, and where we each and every aspect of our health is considered in an inclusive and holistic way. Whilst my show is about raising awareness around the issue of mental health, I do want to make it clear at the very outset that I'm not a mental health professional and I'm not a medically qualified doctor. If you need to seek professional help, then I wholeheartedly encourage you to do so, whether that's by reaching out to your family practitioner, calling the National Mental Health Helpline where you live, reaching out to a local mental health charity, or if you are feeling suicidal, please go to your nearest emergency department. Finally, please heed this trigger warning. I am going to be talking today about some heavy topics and describing some unpleasant situations. If you think you may be triggered by anything I say, please listen mindfully, take a break or switch off if you need to. Only you know what is best for you, so please listen to yourself and do what you feel is right for you. Today I am going to do a deep dive into a more serious mental health topic. I'm going to discuss in more detail than I have on any of my previous shows my experience of post-traumatic stress disorder or PTSD. For those of you who have not tuned into my previous shows and who may not be aware, I was in Hurricane Irma in 2017 in the British Virgin Islands. I will talk about the experience of being in the BVI when Irma made landfall, about how and why this led me to develop PTSD and about diagnosis and recovery from PTSD and other mental health issues. Hurricane Irma made landfall in the BVI on the 6th of September 2017. It was at the time and remains to this day one of the most powerful Atlantic hurricanes ever to make landfall. What that actually means in real life is that we were pummeled, and I mean pummeled, by winds that were coming at us at sustained speeds of 185 miles per hour. To give you an idea of what that actually means in real life, High-speed trains are capable of travelling at 185 miles per hour. That's the equivalent of nearly 300 kilometres per hour. We were pounded by those winds for around 12 hours. And then there were the gusts within the hurricane itself, or the mini tornadoes as I call them. These gusts were flying at us at up to 199 miles per hour, which is 350 kilometres per hour. 
That record of 199 miles per hour was the last known record before the wind recording devices themselves blew away. It is entirely possible that there were wind gusts higher than 199 miles per hour, but that they were never recorded. Putting some real-life context into those vast wind speeds, one of the more unforgettable experiences that I recall was well into the storm. A hurricane has what is known as the first wall, where it spins in one direction whilst hopefully making a forward motion, passing over the land or the sea. And I say hopefully making a forward motion, passing over, because if the hurricane has no forward motion, it sits on top of the land, causing havoc in the process due to the continued battering from the winds and the rain. The hurricane then has a second wall. This is where it spins in the other direction, and this is where it gets wild. For us during Irma, the winds in that second wall were so, so strong that partway into this, we could see two of the doors in our little room where we were taking shelter billowing from the force of the wind, about to be sucked out from the sheer force and strength of that wind. I was taking shelter as part of a group of three others. In those moments, the doors billowing and about to be pulled outward, somehow it felt to me that instinctively we just knew within the group that if those doors were sucked out, which seemed likely at that stage, our entire little shelter would be compromised with the very real risk that everything inside that shelter would be sucked out, including the four of us. In those moments, I had this awful feeling. I felt that the Grim Reaper was standing on the other side of that billowing door, I had a very, very real, unique and terrifying feeling that we were almost certainly going to die. And that feeling of thinking that I was about to die gave rise to the strongest need, the absolute need to fight, the absolute need to survive. And in those moments, by some miracle, we were magically able to find rope that we didn't even know we had in our room and secure and hold those doors in place. So for me, those moments, moments where it seemed to me that my untimely death was almost inevitable, imminent, that was one of the moments my brain went into the fight response, which is one of the common survival responses. In those survival situations, the brain's response will usually be either fight, flight, fawn or freeze. The science behind this is that the part of the brain which identifies whether incoming information is relevant for survival and is called the amygdala. If the amygdala senses a threat, a potential collision with an oncoming vehicle, a person on the street who looks threatening, it sends an instant message to the brain. This is how Dr. Bessel van der Kolk, one of the world's leading experts on trauma and trauma recovery in his excellent book, The Body Keeps the Score, describes it. Dr. van der Kolk goes on to say, the stress hormone system and the autonomic nervous system is recruited to orchestrate a whole body response. Once the danger is passed, the body returns to its normal state fairly quickly. But, and this is the key in people with PTSD, when recovery is blocked, the body is triggered to defend itself, which makes people feel agitated and aroused. So in PTSD sufferers, that state of agitation or arousal remains in place because during a traumatic event, the brain goes into the fight or flight mode. And for a sufferer of PTSD, the brain gets stuck in fight or flight mode or fawn or freeze. That response, that state of hypervigilance or even hypovigilance, which can become solidified in the brain, becomes the only way in which the PTSD sufferer knows how to respond to an event, no matter how benign that event might be. Dr. van der Kolk states, 
If the interpretation of threat by the amygdala is too intense and or the filtering system from the relevant areas of the brain are too weak, as often happens in PTSD, people lose control over automatic emergency responses like prolonged startle or aggressive outburst. So when suffering PTSD, the sufferer's reaction to many ordinary events may be horrifically out of hand by objective standards. For example, and this is just one example of how my reactions to ordinary and benign events took on a life force of their own. When staying in the hotel in Puerto Rico after we had evacuated BVI, and it was a big hotel, I got lost in that hotel trying to find another friend's room to go see her. I went round and round in circles for what felt to me like an interminable period of time. And as I kept circuiting the hotel environs, failing over and over and over again to find my friend's room, I felt a sense of anger, panic, overwhelming frustration rising up inside me. It was at that point that another friend who had probably seen me going round and round in circles approached me to ask if I was okay. And I reacted in the only way I then knew how. I totally flew off the handle, not at him, but at how confusing and silly the hotel was for being so big and having no signs, at least in my mind, for being so big and having no signs. Of course, if that was to happen now and I couldn't find my friend's room, and uh, this is the kind of thing that still happens to me where sometimes I can't find my own hotel room, I go back to the elevator area and I look at the arrows signing towards the room numbers. Alternatively, I go back to reception and ask for directions. But in those moments, my traumatized and PTSD-ridden brain lacked the capacity to think clearly, couldn't rationalize, and therefore couldn't come up with a solution to not being able to find my friend's room. Instead, my emotions took over in their entirety, consumed me, and made me unable to function until my other friend came to my aid and helped me to find the room. Turning now to look at how someone can come to be affected by PTSD, and not just in the context of experiencing a hurricane or other natural disaster. PTSD is a condition that some, but not all, a condition that some people develop after experiencing or witnessing a distressing or life-threatening event or injury. According to PTSD UK, it is estimated that 50 to 70% of people will experience a trauma at some point in their life. The majority of people exposed to traumatic events experience some short-term distress but eventually their trauma fades to a memory, painful but not destructive. PTSD UK goes on to say about the UK population that around 20% of people who experience a trauma may go on to develop post-traumatic stress disorder. This equates to 10% of a population. This figure can vary widely between studies, populations and communities researched, for example, the most recent study in the UK looking at prevalence of PTSD after the COVID-19 pandemic estimated the overall pooled estimate of PTSD prevalence to be 17.52%, double and almost triple than previous estimates. The statistics are slightly different elsewhere in the world. In the USA, the Sidron Institute reported in 2018 that of the people in the United States who experience a traumatic event, 20% will, not may, will develop PTSD. The US Department of Veteran Affairs states that 8 million adults in the US have PTSD in any given year. It also reports that PTSD affects twice as many women as it does men. The Harvard Medical School reports that the age category in which PTSD is the most prevalent is the 45 to 59 year old bracket. 
So looking now at the symptoms of PTSD. Some of the symptoms as set out by the National Institute of Mental Health in the US include having recurring thoughts, flashbacks or dreams of the traumatizing event or events, persistent avoidance, whether that's of the place, triggering objects or feelings related to the incident or incidences, regularly feeling startled, tense, restless or angry, and or misremembering the event, having negative thoughts, feeling guilty or losing interest in previously enjoyable activities. I can add to those symptoms from my own experiences. My symptoms of PTSD included almost all of those that I have just described. And in addition to those, I also found myself forgetting words when trying to hold a conversation or to describe something. For example, I was able to think in my head of a concept, but could not remember the word to describe this concept. In addition, I would find myself descending into a panic attack at a simple question from well-meaning friends and acquaintances asking about my hurricane experience. Those panic attacks came in the form of feeling helpless or having a sense of despair in the face of those seemingly innocuous questions. I would feel my chest tightening and then my throat closing up, making it impossible for me to swallow and then to speak. At times, I would feel lightheaded as if I may faint. Sometimes I would start to sweat, feel nauseous, start trembling, or have hot flushes or even chills. And then the weirdest one of all was when I had a feeling of pins and needles inside my head and then in parts of my body, usually down my arms. Perhaps one of the most disturbing symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder that I had was with me in the weeks and months immediately after Hurricane Irma. Having been displaced and trying to work out where I was going to live and, well, what I was going to do next with my life, I was flying around quite a bit. At one stage, I was living on a small island off the coast of the UK called Guernsey in the Channel Islands. Each time I flew out of Guernsey to go wherever I was going, I love having the window seat on a plane. But every time I would take off from Guernsey in a plane, I would look out the window and have an almost out-of-body experience or an extreme hallucination. I would look out of the window at Guernsey below me and in my mind, my mind's eye, my brain, wherever this was happening, I wouldn't be seeing Guernsey out of the window. Instead, each and every time I looked out that window, I saw the BVI. Sometimes I saw the BVI in the exact way I had seen it the day I flew out of there on the evacuation flight, broken, torn apart, dismembered by the hurricane. Other times when flying out of Guernsey, I would look out of the window of the plane and I would see the BVI in its pristine, perfect aquamarine water version pre-Hurricane Irma. If all the other symptoms didn't make me alive to the fact that all was not well, it was at times like these that I was painfully aware that something was really, really amiss. I mean, it's not normal to look out the window and see a place that you're not actually physically in. It's not normal to look out of a window and see flashbacks of a place you had been in before. It's also not normal to keep having this happen consistently on, on every single occasion that I would take that flight. But rather than taking these extremely strange occurrences, these visions, whatever they were, as the alarm bells that were clearly sounding, rather than acting upon these extremely upsetting and disturbing symptoms, rather than telling someone, anyone, what was happening in my head, rather than reaching out for help to a doctor, a helpline, a friend, a family member, I carried on as if nothing out of the ordinary was happening. And I think a part of that desire to carry on as if nothing was happening 
was because it would have been far too overwhelming to deal with or to think about the fact that things were as far away from ordinary and normal as they could possibly be. Part of that overwhelm was predicated in the fact that, as far as I was concerned, I was going mad. I actually thought I was going mad. And in my head, I started to concoct scenarios as to how I would live going forward with my newfound madness, which I felt had become a part of me. As strange as that may all sound now, certainly it sounds strange to me with the benefit of hindsight. As strange as it may sound that I was starting to plan out my life, how I would live with this madness that had beset me, I did not know that I had a condition. I did not know, not really, what PTSD even was. And I certainly did not know that I had PTSD. It was only by reaching out for help eventually that within a few short weeks of getting that help, I was able to see exactly what had been going on. And thanks to my extraordinary therapist with her help and intervention, I was able to get on the road to recovery. For anyone listening today who is suffering with the symptoms I am describing or indeed from any other symptoms where you don't feel quite right or anyone who thinks, hearing this, that they may be suffering with PTSD or any other form of mental ill health, please, please seek immediate help. When you are feeling defeated, down, helpless, which is likely how you will be feeling if you have PTSD or any other mental illness, when you are feeling dejected, one of the best things you can do is to delegate. That's right, delegate. A bit like getting a personal assistant, but for your brain. One of the best things you can do is to delegate to the medical profession what needs to be done next. By seeing your GP or family medical practitioner, by calling upon a local mental health charity, or by telephoning or texting your National Mental Health Helpline if you feel unable to leave the house, for example, you will be taking the first step to recovery. And whilst the responsibility to heal and recover does, of course, ultimately rest with you, you have to do the work after all. You can start that process by delegating the how and where of it all by seeking help from a medical professional. So what had caused those PTSD symptoms to develop in me? One of the events that led to the development of PTSD for me was the scenario I described earlier about the genuine and very real threat to our lives when the doors to the room looked like they would blow out unless we took immediate action, which mercifully we were able to do. Another event came along the following morning. How does it feel to wake up one morning and think, all my friends have died? All my friends have died. The morning after the storm, I, along with a group of friends with whom I had taken shelter, were looking out at what was left of Tortola in the BVI. There was nothing left. In those moments, all we saw was emptiness, not a single sign of life, houses blown away, boats strewn across the hillside as if they were made of paper, cars upturned, ripped in half, lying on their side on the hillside. No people at all. No one out and about walking around as would be the case on any other morning. Trees that had once stood on the hillsides were ripped right away out of the earth. What little was left of the trees had their branches stripped away. What little was left of the vege vegetation looked like some wild, crazy fire had swept through and had ravaged and burnt everything it could touch. What is that feeling? Waking up and seeing that level of destruction and wholeheartedly believing that everyone you know and care for 
except for your immediate companions, had died. For me, it was the lowest point of my life. It was a feeling I would not wish upon anyone. To this day, even now as I speak to you on this show, visualizing those moments and feeling what I felt in those moments is making me feel, well, quite emotional and also physically sick, nauseous. I now know to breathe through it, which may sound simple and at its heart, it is simple. But in the moment, the moments of terror, panic, grief, shock at what I thought had happened to my friends, breathing through it was, oddly enough, not on the top of my list of chosen activities. Another series of horrifying experience which led me to develop PTSD were events as they unfolded on the day of evacuation itself. The day started with me having to say goodbye to my beloved pet cats. The evacuation flights that had been arranged for us were unlikely to accept pets, we were told. We were also told not to bring our pets to the airport in the hope that they, in the hope that they may be able to make it onto the flights. The reason for that was that there was a risk that if our pets could not board the flights and had to remain at the airport, they may be euthanized. Yep, euthanized. Having heard about this restriction on evacuating with my pets a few days prior, it had slowly dawned on me that if I did evacuate, I would have to go without my cats. At which point I was going to stay, on my own, I was not going to leave my cats. But the personal safety situation was very quickly going south in the BVI at this stage. A few days prior to us being able to evacuate, we had been threatened with looting. And that was a threat we took very, very seriously. So there I was, unable to take my cats with me and wanting to stay behind. My friends talked me out of this. It wasn't easy for them, but eventually I was persuaded to leave. Not least because of the immense danger to life as we knew it that was presenting itself as a greater and greater daily threat. So I had to decide, decide what to do with my cats. The only real choice available was to let them go free. Having decided on that course of action, thankfully, as a result of some last minute thinking and great, great fortune, that one of the people in our group was a vet who realized that he had the key to the vet's practice. On the day of evacuation, I was able to leave my cats inside the practice in the hope that someone with a rat problem would come looking for the cats to take home. And that's exactly what happened. My cats were taken to another of the islands, a smaller one, to be the island ratters, as they had a big rodent problem there after the hurricane. There were huge ups and downs after that though, with me not knowing where one of my cats was for three and a half months because she had got scared and run away. But happily, this ended well, and by Christmas of 2017, my cats and I were reunited. But going back to the day of evacuation, if everything else that had happened already during the hurricane wasn't traumatic enough, leaving my cats behind was the tipping point. Having just started the day with all of that, we made our way to the airport, which took the longest it has ever taken to get from Roadtown on Tortola in the BVI to the airport. Residents had made heroic efforts to clear the roads, which is the only way that journey was made possible in the first place and at all. But in spite of those heroic efforts, what no one could do anything about at that stage was the fact that the roads were broken, the tarmac having been lifted off the roads by the sheer force of the winds and the pounding of the heavy, heavy rainfall, and quite possibly by the storm surge, which we mercifully didn't experience the effects of being up on a steep, steep hill as we were. In other places, the roads remained blocked in part, either because there was a huge boat lying on its side across the road, or because someone's house had taken flight and landed in the middle of the road. In addition to all of that, there was the traffic, with as many people as could get off the island, understandably trying to get off the island. 
We made it to the airport. That was probably at around 10 or 11 that morning. Our day having started at around four or five earlier that day. The sight that greeted me at the day on the day at the airport is one that, like many of the other experiences over those days, was one that is unforgettable. The inside terminal area of the tiny airport on Beef Island in the BVI was not being used for people trying to evacuate. The British Royal Marines had set up camp in there in part. They needed somewhere to run logistics from and perhaps that was what they were using the airport for, it being a sensible place to do that from. Either way, the even tinier outside space of the airport was where everyone was milling around, trying to form lines to get off the island, lines that nobody knew would necessarily go anywhere. And when I say everyone, there were hundreds of people in this small space, all desperately trying to get off the island. Layered on top of that was that this was the first time since the hurricane itself that I found myself in such a large group of people, all of whom who had suffered the same horrific experiences. The looks on people's faces were so telling of the indelible horrors they had themselves endured. Grown adults, men and women, other people I knew, sat on the floor on the concrete floor of the external areas of the airport with wide, tear-strewn eyes, barely blinking. Perhaps they were reliving in their minds what had happened to them. Perhaps they were in such utter shock and disbelief at what had happened to them that they were just blank. Some people were mute, unable to communicate, wildly staring out into the middle distance in front of them, unable to and therefore not responding to their family and friends when they spoke. Others were wailing and sobbing, saying things that were incomprehensible to those who were listening, perhaps even incomprehensible to those who were uttering the words, but just needing to get the wails, the sobs, the words out, like a volcanic eruption that would not cease. Others were milling around, away from the immediate vicinity of the airport, chain-smoking cigarettes, with similar wide eyes of confusion, shock, grief and sadness. And in the midst of all of this, the poor Marines had been tasked with maintaining order and helping us the best they could, Having been through what we had been through, the smallest act of kindness was causing me to burst into tears. One of those kind Marines must have looked at my face, scarred by shock and sadness, dehydrated as we all were. He offered me a bottle of water. Bottled water. Water that was clean. Water that was drinkable. Water that was available. In those moments, that smallest act of kindness was the biggest gesture anyone could have made. And of course I burst into immediate tears, with the poor Marine looking concerned, asking if I was okay, not knowing what else to say. And in the background of all of this chaos, heartbreak, trauma and ineffable suffering, the hours dragged by. The evacuation flights came and went, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited for my name to be called out. And in the background of all of that, there was an overpowering stench of blocked toilets, Toilets that could not be flushed as there was no water or electricity supply. Toilets that each and every person who passed through that airport had had to use as it was our only option. Every now and then a waft of the stinking toilets would pass by, causing anyone who smelt it to gag. My own personal madness, to which I alluded earlier in the context of seeing the BVI landscape out of the aeroplane window and not the Guernsey landscape where I was physically located at the time, well, that madness had peaked long before those visions took place. And that madness for me peaked at the airport on the day of, of evacuation. By about hour six of the interminable waiting at the airport, I felt the strongest sense of suicidality I have ever felt. And it came in this form. 
I look back at this now and see just how incomprehensible and strange those feelings were. But here goes. I started to look at the Marines to see if they were armed. All I can say is thank God that either they were unarmed or that I, at least in those moments, thought that they were unarmed. Had they been armed, I got it into my head that I would go up to one of them, pull the gun from his holster and shoot myself in the head with it. Yeah, shoot myself in the head with it and I know how to shoot a gun. Just to make it stop. Just to make the anxiety stop. Just to stop seeing the other people experiencing all their pain. Just to stop hearing the wailing of the children, the confused, hungry, dehydrated, tired children in the airport mix. Just to make the seemingly everlasting waiting to get on a plane stop. Just to feel calm again. Just to feel a sense of peace again. And in those moments, another Marine, perhaps seeing my wide, wild eyes, came over to me, once again, offering me a small bottle of water, which I gladly accepted. But this second small bottle of water was more than a small act of kindness of the offer of a drink. The bottle of water was the symbol of me disengaging from my sense of suicidality. That offer of a bottle of water brought me back down to earth. That offer of the bottle of water from that second kind marine reminded me that people cared about me, that we all cared about each other. That notwithstanding the seemingly impossible situation that we were in, that in spite of all of that, there was still hope. And that hope came in the form of the single British Royal Marine offering me a single small bottle of water. With PTSD, as with other mental and brain health conditions and issues, there are solutions and specific types of treatment that are available. In other words, there is hope. So how does someone go about recovering from something like PTSD? And it doesn't have to be post-traumatic stress disorder. It can be depression, anxiety, and all other mental and brain health conditions. I've already referenced the need to reach out, to reach out for help. Whilst the Marine offering me that second bottle of water was not a medical practitioner, I mean, he might have been, but in those moments, he was there in his capacity as a Royal Marine. Whilst I did not receive medical treatment from him, what I did receive in those moments was connection and connectedness. In those desperate, desperate moments, when we are flailing, drowning, when we are lost, human connection is the first step to bringing us back up for air. Just a small gasp of air to begin with is fine. And that can come in the form of reaching out to a friend, a mental health charity, your local national mental health helpline, dialing your country's emergency services number, or getting yourself to the local emergency department if you are feeling suicidal. Or it can be in the form of making an appointment to see your GP or family medical practitioner. For anyone who is suffering with PTSD or thinks they may have developed PTSD, and for anyone who is enduring any other mental health condition or thinks that they may be, then the need to reach out for help is, in my view, immediate. In other words, the sooner we are able to reach out for help, the sooner we can start to feel better. After all, when we have a physical injury, such as a broken arm or leg, firstly, it's kind of unavoidable that our arm or leg is broken, hanging from us in a strange and no doubt painful way. It's also close to impossible to function in our usual day-to-day -day lives with a broken limb. Lifting things, walking, driving, picking up the kids, cooking meals. All these basic things become a big deal 
I know this from having broken a rib around 10 years ago. Breathing was painful. Opening doors to get in and out of rooms was excruciating. Carrying groceries was a whole other world of pain, and that was with the painkillers. So why should our brain and mental health be any different? Just because you and others around you may not be able to see the pain, may not be able to know what's really going on under the surface, maintaining and looking after our brain and mental health is just as important as maintaining physical health. Without this kind of tending to our mental health, there is a risk that a serious condition may go undiagnosed, and not just for a short time. Bob Parsons is an example of this. Parsons is known for being the founder of GoDaddy.com, the immensely successful domain name provider which I'm sure you have all heard of. Parsons recently sold GoDaddy.com for 2.5 billion US dollars. Parsons is also a war veteran having fought in the Vietnam War. He discovered only relatively recently that he had been suffering with PTSD and that he had been suffering with PTSD for 49 years. And it's not even a silent condition where you may be tempted to think, well, it's okay. I mean, I think I may have PTSD, but no one really knows about it and I'm able to carry on with my life. You may be thinking, I wake up in the morning, hit the gym, go to work, get my work done, come home, chat to my family, go to bed, repeat. Everything is fine, you're thinking. Except it's not fine. For starters, it's not fine if you are trying to bury or hide your symptoms or condition. That's a horrible, horrible way to live. Parsons speaks to this. He has said that until he was diagnosed and dealt with his PTSD, enabling him to be cured properly, he would deal with his PTSD by burying himself in work. And in addition to that, he says that he found a big difference amongst his co-workers who now noticed how much easier it was to work with him. I'll say that again. Once cured from his PTSD, Parsons became aware of how his co-workers noticed that he was much easier to work with. I can attest to this. Whilst I was suffering with PTSD, the tiniest thing not working out would cause me to react with immense anger and frustration. That kind of behaviour only served to push people away, people I cared about and didn't want to treat badly. It was as if something else had taken over and I had no control over my emotions. Again, a horrible way in which to live. And mental health conditions can affect anyone, not just successful billionaires like Parsons. The American Psychological Association provides a case study of a gentleman named Terry. This is from their website, the link to which will be in the show notes for my podcast if you're listening there. And if you're not, you can tune in to my podcast, Shufra Deb, with you, available on demand and for free on Spotify, Apple, Google and other platforms. Back to Terry, though. Terry is a 42-year-old earthquake survivor who had been experiencing PTSD for more than eight years Terry consistently avoided thoughts and images related to witnessing the injuries and deaths of others during the earthquake. Throughout the years, he began spending an increasing amount of time at work and filling his days with hobbies and other activities. By the time he sought treatment, Terry had managed to fill his entire week with various obligations in order to keep his mind occupied and to minimise the possibility that he would think about the traumatic event. He also worked hard to convince others that the earthquake had not affected him. He did this by avoiding people that knew he had gone through this experience and by quickly changing the topic when it came up. However, he found that whenever he had free time, 
he would have un- he would have unwanted intrusive thoughts and images about the earthquake. In addition, he was having increasingly distressing nightmares that were causing him to lose several hours of sleep each night. His repeated violent awakenings throughout the night had also disturbed his wife's sleep, resulting in them no longer sharing a bedroom. Terry found that the harder he worked to avoid these thoughts, the more frequent they would become, and that they were getting stronger each day. He feared that if he thought about the memory, he would lose control of his emotions and would not be able to cope. He was concerned that the fear and panic that occurred when he was reminded of the trauma would last forever. By avoiding thoughts about the memory, he never allowed himself to test out his predictions. Furthermore, through his repeated avoidance of the trauma memory, his fear continued to grow. Terry eventually sought treatment because his symptoms were significantly impairing his work and family life. After receiving a thorough assessment of his PTSD and comorbid symptoms, psychoeducation about PTSD symptoms, and a rationale for using imaginal exposures, in other words, exposure therapy, Terry received a number of sessions of imaginal exposure. With encouragement from his therapist, he engaged with the trauma memory in session by providing a detailed account of what he had witnessed during the earthquake. The therapist prompted him to begin the account at the point at which he initially was aware that the earthquake was happening. She prompted him to describe in detail where he was at the time, who he was with, what he saw, how it ended, the sensations he had, and importantly, what he was thinking and feeling at the time. With each recounting, the therapist asked Terry to provide even more sensory and emotional details about the experience to facilitate habituation to the memory and to increase his mastery of his anxiety related to facing it. These retellings were recorded so that Terry could listen to the account outside of session for homework. By engaging with the memory in a systematic manner and not allowing himself to escape or to avoid it, he recognised that his fear and anxiety subsided as the exposures went on. Furthermore, he was able to test some of his predictions he had made about what would happen if he allowed himself to think about the trauma. He recognised that he could fully maintain control of his emotions and that, although he felt fear and anxiety throughout the exposures, these feelings quickly passed. Through the use of repeated imaginal exposures, Terry slowly began to feel more comfortable with discussing the trauma and telling people about his experience. He no longer feared the memory and was able to recognise that the memory itself was not dangerous. That was taken from the APA's website. I tell you this to provide an account of how bad things can get without treatment, how we can end up micromanaging our lives and putting up boundaries around ourselves in order to protect ourselves and to avoid dealing with the effects of trauma and PTSD. It's possible that we may not even realise that this is what we are doing. But by micromanaging our lives in this way, by putting up boundaries around ourselves in the hope of self-protection, we end up living a half-life. We end up continuously looking over our shoulders so the trauma monster, the PTSD, doesn't get us. We don't open ourselves up to beautiful life experiences and connections with other people, all because we are so busy protecting ourselves and avoiding our emotions. That's not to say, though, that exposure therapy, as was received by Terry in the case study, is the correct treatment for everyone. And in any event, any kind of treatment must absolutely must be done under the supervision of a mental health professional. 
Otherwise, there is the risk of being triggered with no one there to help you manage the symptoms of that. What this goes back to is the importance of reaching out for help, not continuing to suffer in silence, and not living a half-life because we are scared. Treatment is something that is accessible. In spite of how it may feel to you right now if you're in the throes of experiencing PTSD or another mental health condition, Megan Moog writes in the New York Presbyterian, which is one of the most comprehensive academic healthcare delivery systems in the US. Moog writes in their newsletter about understanding PTSD in the context of uncertain times produced by the COVID-19 pandemic. In this article, Moog spoke with Dr. Joe Ann DeFide, who says, as humans, we often think that if the problem seems enormous, the solution has to be, and that isn't really the case. With this, Dr. Defide shares her tips on how to prioritize and recover mental health during difficult times. She shares a nine-step process and plan to managing and recovering mental health, which I would like to share with you. The first tip is to have a schedule. Dr. Defide says that even if your life doesn't in fact require a schedule, it's very helpful to have one. And a schedule doesn't have to be something complicated. She says about this, it can be as simple as wake up, make breakfast, and make the bed. Keeping a schedule is a way to keep yourself grounded when you are feeling distressed. From my own experience, one of the things that got me through the first few weeks and months after Hurricane Irma, when I was quite literally all over the place, and I was feeling anything but grounded, was to make sure that I made my bed every morning. As simple and perhaps banal as that may sound, the simple act of making my bed became a grounding routine. It also had the effect of my brain telling itself that I had achieved something that day. Even if making my bed was the only task I completed in the whole day, in the depths of my PTSD, that one task of making my bed was a very important one. And for me, that all came about because of a speech I came across that had been given by Admiral William McRaven at the University of Texas commencement speech in 2014. In that speech, Admiral McRaven says that when you have made your bed, if by chance you have a miserable day, you will come home to a bed that is made, that you made, and a made bed gives you encouragement that tomorrow will be better. So if part of your routine includes making your bed, and I encourage it to be a part of your routine, you will feel grounded by having completed that task as one of your first tasks of the day. And as Admiral McRaven says, if you have a bad day, you will come home to a made bed, one that you made yourself, and it will be something that you can be proud of. The second tip that Dr. Defide gives on how to prioritize and recover mental health during difficult times is to prioritize rest and diet. Of this, she says, if you don't need to be up at 7 a.m. to go to work, that's okay but make sure to normalize getting up at a regular hour and going to bed at a regular hour. Whilst an extra dessert or a glass of wine is okay sometimes, avoid overindulging. And I can speak to the value of prioritizing rest and diet from personal experience. Even without the PTSD, having a routine as regards the time we wake up and the time we go to bed is a valuable tool for maintaining good mental and physical health. I wake up at 6 a.m. and I'm up to bed by 9 p.m. and asleep by 10. I do this most nights. And on the nights I don't do this, either because I've had an extra dessert, an extra glass of wine, or watched just one more episode of my favorite show, 
or I've been out late eating and drinking. I really feel it. The next day, I'm physically slightly more tired than I would like to be. I don't have as much mental energy as I know I am capable of having. And depending on how many nights in a row I have fallen out of my routine, the longer lasting effects of this can go on for days where I'm not quite functioning at my best on work productivity, unable to focus as well, not thinking as lucidly, and not performing as well in the gym. The third tip that Dr. Davide has for maintaining groundedness in times of difficulty and as a way of recovering mental health, and I would say also maintaining mental health, is to exercise regularly. She says about regular exercise, exercise is one of the single best mental and physical things we can do for ourselves because when you exercise, your brain is producing a lot of chemicals to relieve the stress and counteract that sympathetic nervous response. If you are not currently exercising, start simply by taking a walk around your block and build from there. The fourth piece of advice is to make social connections. Dr. Defide says of this, whether you like to spend hours by yourself or you need lots of people around, taking time to have social interactions is important. There are challenges if you're still communicating with people over technology. She is saying this in the context of the pandemic, but always try to find ways to make those connections. I go back to what I was saying earlier about the post-Hurricane Irma evacuation scenario at the airport. That one moment of connection with the British Royal Marine offering me a bottle of water made a huge difference to me to disengage with immense feelings of overwhelm that I was having in those moments. The next tip for maintaining mental health offered by Dr. Defide is to practice perseverance. Of this, she says, the biggest threat to changing your habits for good is becoming overwhelmed and giving up too easily. Set small realistic goals so that you don't become frustrated. Try to make a plan and stick with it as best as you can. Don't be discouraged if it takes time to implement new habits. Persistence is key. I think the key in all of this is the part about not getting discouraged. If the new plans and habits you have set for yourself unravel a little from time to time, or even if they unravel a lot at times, it happens to everyone, and anyone who says it doesn't happen to them may not be taking the whole picture into account. If you are going through a tough time with your mental health, then that is all the more reason to be kinder to yourself and to give yourself grace if your routines, schedules and plans don't go well according to plan. If, for example, you are not able to maintain any of the positive practices that you have put in place for yourself, that's completely okay. Know that tomorrow is a new day and an opportunity for a fresh start. And start small. Go back to just one of the smaller practices that you had for yourself. If you started to make your bed, then go back to doing only that as your regular practice that you ensure you do. And then maintain that one practice for seven days. Then, slowly, add other practices back in. For example, you may have set yourself a regular bedtime, but you fell back into the older habits of staying up for that extra glass of wine or that extra episode of your favourite show, or to watch a film in its entirety in one sitting. That's okay too. Tomorrow, drink the one glass of wine slower, making it last longer. Turn the TV off as soon as the episode that you're watching finishes before the next one loads and starts playing. And if you're in the middle of watching a film, set your alarm to the time you want to go up to bed and put the alarm on the other side of the room. As soon as the alarm goes off, switch off the TV, you can come back to the film the following day or after that. Get off the couch, 
and walk over to your annoying alarm clock in order to switch it off and then go up to bed. Along with practicing perseverance, Dr. Davide advises us to embrace the power of positivity. She says of this, there is abundant research on positive psychology and happiness. Showing gratitude and optimism is not only nice to do, it's good for your health. When you do something nice for someone else, it not only makes them feel good, but it also makes you feel better too. I've spoken to you on earlier shows about positivity, abundance and gratitude. And it's not just about doing nice things for others. I referred to an article on a previous show from research.com as regards the emotional benefits of practicing gratitude, which is that practicing and showing gratitude has the ability to improve our mood. On this, research.com states that gratitude plays a significant role in enhancing positive emotions. By expressing gratitude on a regular basis, our focus will shift to the positive aspects of our day, which has the effect of lifting our frame of mind and spirit. It may sound simple, silly even, but how and what we think becomes our daily reality. If we always look out the window and see the clouds and the concrete that may be in our line of sight, if we always miss the blue skies in between the clouds, and if we ignore the trees dotted along the concrete sidewalks, we internalize an external world with a negative frame of mind. So instead of bemoaning the clouds or the concrete, look deeper and further and see the blue skies and the trees and be grateful for them. Do this enough and enough times over and the external world and our view of it will start to shift into something much more positive. Do this and before you know it, you have cultivated a gratitude practice. All you have to do is look out the window and give what you're seeing the glass half full interpretation rather than the glass half empty outlook. The next of Dr. DeFide's tips is to carve out downtime. And about this, she says, if you engage your brain in different things, it's harder to be anxious and harder to think about all of the stressful things. Simple things like reading a book by yourself or with your children can become a helpful habit. Engaging your brain in different ways is not to say that we should start adopting avoidance strategies. I spoke earlier about Bob Parsons, the founder of GoDaddy.com, who suffered with PTSD for 49 years. About this, Parsons says of himself that he had taken to burying himself in work in order to avoid thinking about and dealing with his emotional and mental condition. Taking downtime is different to that. As Dr. Defide suggests, reading a book by yourself or to your children is a nice thing to do. And if you don't have kids but you have pets, you can even read to them. I actually love doing that with my cats as they love listening to my voice. So by me reading to them from time to time, I get my downtime and they get to hear my voice. And for those of you skeptics out there who are listening thinking, yeah, right, her cats love the sound of her voice, whatever, pop over to my house and you can see it for yourselves to believe it. For those of you listening who have seen it, you know. Years ago, one of my friends noticed that when I speak to my girl cat, she cocks her head to one side and looks up at me as if she's listening and then looks away when I stop talking. So there you have it. Your pets probably love the sound of your voice. Get your downtime by having some fun with that. Dr. Davide's next tip is one I have spoken about on every show, which is to seek out professional help when you're experiencing a mental health challenge. She says, talk to your doctor. The concept of seeking help for your mental health may seem daunting, but if your doctor told you that you had high cholesterol, you would take the necessary steps to correct it. 
Think of your mental health in the same terms because it is essential. Don't discriminate against your brain. If you are feeling symptoms for a prolonged period of time, like difficulty sleeping, a hard time concentrating or irritability, talk to your healthcare provider. You can also take advantage of mental health and mindfulness apps, which can be accessed easily on a computer or smartphone and provide you with some relief. And that summarizes beautifully what I've been always been saying to you. Dr. Defide's final tip for dealing with mental health challenges is to practice acceptance. She says of this, give yourself a break. In the context of the pandemic, she says, consider where we are and what we have gone through as a society. As individuals, we can't create change overnight, but we can appreciate and accept where we are and what we do have. Many people are not exactly where they want to be in life, and the world isn't always what we want it to be. It's easier said than done, but accepting that you're not going to feel good every day is an important part of living. And this applies not just in the context of the post-COVID-19 fallout. The need to accept certain situations that we can't change is key in being able to unblock energies and to move forward. One of the ways in which we can start to accept something that we cannot change is to focus on what we have control over. For example, our perspective is something over which we have control. We can try viewing the difficult situation as a stepping stone to something else, something better. I have spoken to you today about my very personal experiences of Hurricane Irma and some of the situations and scenarios that led me to develop PTSD. Not everyone who experiences or witnesses a traumatic event will go on to have PTSD, but around 20% of these people may go on to develop PTSD. With this relatively small number, some of you may be thinking that this information is irrelevant to you, or is irrelevant if you're not living in hurricane belts or other natural disaster areas. Two things arise from this. More and more of the global population will likely be affected by natural disasters as the years go on, with stronger and more intense weather events, and if not natural disasters, more and more people in the world will likely be affected by extreme weather, sometimes occurring in places where previously they would not have, at times of years they would not have. For example, only in January of this year, 2023, California experienced rainfall that is being described as unprecedented, which led to severe flooding, landslides and large-scale evacuations of residents. Even more recently, the Midwest and the South in the US experienced a string of severe tornadoes. The Storm, Storm Prediction Center in the US reported that there were 168 preliminary reports of tornadoes, most of them in the South. With all of this going on, what is likely is a rise in the number of refugees and those in need of help further to an event of extreme weather. That has an impact on the entirety of society not just those directly affected. How will you speak to a survivor of a natural disaster? How will you help someone in the immediacy when they have left their home, all of their possessions, and possibly family members and pets? Because you may meet these people. I certainly met a whole host of different people in the immediacy of the storm in different countries, ranging from Puerto Rico to Spain to the UK to the Channel Islands, to Bermuda, and to the US, all in the space of less than 12 months post Irma. Many of these people were people I would not have met otherwise because I would not physically have been there. Some of these people had an opinion on my experience. 
Having heard some of my stories and accounts of how these experiences affected me, my advice to you when you meet someone who you know has experienced a trauma is not to have an opinion on their pain and suffering because that's not your place. Unless you're a qualified medical professional being paid to have an opinion, just don't. Instead, put yourself in their position. How would you feel if these things had happened to you? Be compassionate, and that will be the biggest help to them. For those of you listening who are experiencing PTSD, or think you may be, or experiencing any other mental or brain health issue, or think you may be, or you're going through a difficult time with your mental health, I hope that what I have shared on this show, followed by the more practical tips on caring for yourself that I have offered, help you. The most important aspect is to get help. If you have been affected by anything that I have said on this show, please, please seek help. Whether that's by contacting your local national mental health helpline, reaching out to a friend, or making an appointment to see your GP or family mental health practitioner or physical health practitioner in order to discuss and obtain routes to treatment because help and treatment are out there. If you're feeling suicidal, please reach out to someone or go to your nearest emergency department or call your national emergency line where you can get help. And I promise you that getting help will be worth it. Thank you for listening. Bye for now. The Shuvra Deb With You podcast is inspired and brought to you by Shuvra Deb. Copyright Shuvra Deb. Thank you all so much for tuning in and for listening to Shuvra Deb with you. And please do tune in every Thursday at 2pm on Bobo FM 89.1 for more topics related to and relevant to mental health. If any of you would like to reach out to me directly about any of the issues I've discussed, please do email me at shuvradeb82 at gmail.com that's spelt S-H-U-V-R-A-D-E-B, the numbers 82 at gmail.com. Thank you so much for tuning in and listening.